Hey, what's going on? Welcome to the Raptors Reasonless Podcast. I'm your host, Blake Murphy. Joining me on the line, as always, Eric Kareem. Eric, for the third try, what's up, man? The Raptors are up 2-0, he says organically. Yeah, this is, uh, I believe, just the second time in franchise history that is happening. Yes, uh, they were up on Washington 2-0, and then in 2018, uh, one decisive win, one win that required a magnificent Lucas Nogueira pass, of course, in game one. Uh, who can forget that? All Bebe moments must live on in, in, in our memories. Uh, and then they blew two games in Washington. They didn't blow two games in Washington. They lost them pretty dishearteningly and uh, responded to win that series. And it's impossible to say whatever happened, whatever else happened in that playoff run. Who's to say? Not certainly not me. I don't. Uh, I don't have any recollection. Right. Yeah, I have no memory of that. Uh, so yeah, the Raptors are up two games to nothing on the Brooklyn Nets in their first round NBA playoff series. Uh, they have the chance to sweep for the first time in franchise history. Twenty five years. Yeah, have a chance to sweep here. So that's it, cool. It's good to do new, new things as far into a relationship. It keeps yeah, it, it's, it keeps it it's, spicy. It's just surprising that there are new things still to do, especially like after the championship <laughs> year. But hey, winning winning the way you're supposed to, still being on that list is uh, quite a lot. And hey, the Raptors are unique in this regard this year as a high seed who are taking care of business. The Milwaukee Bucks and Los Angeles Lakers both lost in their the first game of their 1-8 series. Uh, the Lakers, of course, to the surging Portland Trailblazers. And the Milwaukee Bucks to a shorthanded Orlando Magic team, to which every Raptors fan has been quick to point out, at least when the Raptors lost the game one to the Orlando Magic, the Orlando Magic had their two best players healthy. Yeah, um, that was, I mean, I think Bucks in four was the most common prediction in that series and maybe one of the most common predictions in any series. Like Orlando is just so on paper, ill-designed to compete with that team. And yet, I mean, this is why they play seven of them. Uh, but that was a weird game. Uh, shout out to Terry Ross doing big things. Yeah, it was fun. I mean, it's cool to see DJ Augustine do that against someone else. Um, I do think, you know, I, I think if you're like... Um, like, let's drop the the being facetious. If you're a Raptor fan and you're looking at that game, you know, it's not particularly telling. It's not like the Magic are going to upset the Bucks or anything like that. But the reason the Magic were able to play so well was that they were extremely well prepared for how Milwaukee plays. And Milwaukee doesn't stray from that at all. You saw Vucevic just feast, um, like, as Assad said on Twitter, it was just pick and pop practice. It was... Um, you know, it's especially funny right after our colleague Eric Name did this amazing piece. It was so good about how Brook Lopez is the best defensive big in basketball and that Vucevic just uh, takes him to town. But the Magic are well coached and they, they play hard and Milwaukee doesn't stray from their strategy much. And I think, you know, everyone in the league knows that right now. So the Magic aren't really showing anything that's going to inform what other teams do. But it is a reminder that... At its core, the Bucks are betting on Giannis and three-point variants to go their way four times out of seven. Giannis is a pretty heavy chip in that, but there are paths to exploiting what the Bucks do, at least on the defensive end. Uh, so yeah, not uh, they are not infallible. If the Orlando Magic can beat them once, 
other teams could probably beat them four times, just not the Orlando Magic. That's That stands to reason. And uh, I mean, it's just interesting that the two number one seeds, both who don't have much to play for in the seeding games uh, and looked like they didn't have much to play for from both an effort but also an execution standpoint, come out and drop their first games. Like, I, we don't know how much that means. I'm hesitant to say... I mean, there's still a lot of time for them to get their stuff together and, and you know, take care of these series. And it could, you know, Lakers, Bucks could still very well be the finals. But uh, the carryover is noteworthy, although I suppose one instant short of being able to write a New York Times trend piece about it. Uh, I would say, if anything, it just shows the value in being maniacally competitive about even meaningless games. That it just, you know, finding that, like, when, when your 17th man can find that gear for you late in the game, you know, it's uh, it's a good sign about the entire team's ability to do that, I guess. Uh, the Raptors did need that gear a little bit over these first two games. So, game one was uh, mostly smooth. The Raptors came out starting to... Uh, take care of business like we've never seen them do in a game one before. Opened up a 17-point lead after one. That swelled to 33. Uh, the Nets did get it down to eight at one point. Wasn't really threatened that much by feel or statistically uh, per unpredictable. The Raptors still had a 92% chance of winning the game when it got down to eight. They then pulled away pretty decisively for a 24-point victory. Eric, was it weird for you covering a game one, and you've covered a lot of these now, where the <laughs> Raptors were actually uh, playing well? Yeah. Um, I mean, we all made the jokes. I certainly made the joke in my uh, best, worst, uh, best possible outcome, worst possible outcome, most likely outcome, sorry, series primer kind of thing. And the most likely series outcome, I said that the Raptors would win in five and lose game one. Um which obviously doesn't make logical sense, but I, I feel like I've, you know, I've seen it so much that it almost has to happen now. So it, it was, it was truly bizarre. <laughs> um, I, I don't think, as you said, like the, the game wasn't really in doubt, but I don't think the comeback was an accident. It wasn't just the, a normal run or the result of a team let taking their foot off the pedal. Like I think the Nets definitely did some, some good things in that comeback, especially Karis Levert and how he adjusted uh, to the Raptors sort of swarming defense or swarming unpredictable defense uh, that, that helped them get to that point. But, uh, but yeah, on the whole, like a 24 point win in, in game one, you know, a, a wire to wire victory, I believe it's, it was new. It was it. It was a new thing. Yeah, it's a it's a weird weird world we're living in, man. The Raptors uh, take care of business. Yeah, very. <laughs> I mean, that is that is true. Before the Raptors take care of business, part uh, obviously in many ways, but uh, but yeah, I mean, some some teams got to be professional up in the bubble, you know. Um. Yeah. Someone, someone, some one seed or or two seed, some, how should we say this, some heavy favorite, one of the three heavy favorites has to actually win, uh, if only for scheduling purposes, so they can get it down to where uh, there are only three games a day instead of four. 
because my life has been nothing but watching basketball the last few days. It's beautiful. Yeah, it's it's really fun. I mean, the early starts are awesome uh, for us. Uh, there there were some times in that game. I think there. I think it was during the second quarter. There was like a back and forth where they were both pushing the pace. This I'm talking about game two now. So sorry, I'm. I'm going back and forth in my head. That's okay. I was going to bunch them together anyway. Um, So finish your thought and then we'll talk game two. Because I think our thoughts are mostly going to be related to both games. Yeah. um, They they were going end-to-end, but neither team was scoring. And it just wasn't pretty or crisp end-to-end basketball. There's something about fast-paced basketball. Like when it's good, it's like breathtaking. But bad, fast-paced basketball is worse than bad, slow-paced basketball. Somehow, uh, I, I don't, I'll have to explore that thought a bit more, uh, while we're not recording a podcast to see sort of why I think that is, but there's just, it's so slot, like it just seems so sloppy and ill-planned and, ugh. Anyway, this game, <laughs> game two had an, uh, at least a, a brief stretch of that. Yeah. So game two, uh, the Raptors came out and the Nets looked significantly Different and a little uh, a little better in general, uh, but a big big change in defensive approach for the Nets. Uh, we saw in Game One the Raptors hit a lot of threes and a lot of those. Uh, it was a franchise record twenty two threes hit in a playoff game. They were twenty two forty four overall. Eight of those came from Fred VanVleet just picking apart uh, Brooklyn's drop coverage. If you don't know what I mean when I say drop coverage, if you picture a pick and roll, um, there are a couple different ways to defend that. Uh, you can switch. The two players can switch, which is w- what the Raptors do a lot of the time. Uh, you can have the big man come out and kind of hedge or corral uh, the ball handler so he can't get a lane, and it gives the ball handler's man time to recover. Or the big can just drop back, and what that does is it opens up some mid-range or, or some pull-up threes. But the idea is that the person can't drive because there's a big man in the way, and if the screen setter starts to roll to the rim, Uh, the big man is still in a good position to defend him. So uh, ideally, you don't have to bring a third man in to defend that action. That's Brooklyn's strategy. They've stuck to it pretty firmly uh, in the Jacques Vaughn era and on the season as a whole. Uh, The Raptors picked it apart pretty well in game one. So they came out in game two and looked fundamentally different. Uh, Jared Allen was doing a lot more on the defensive end, uh, a lot more rangy, a lot of uh, switching for, for Jared Allen, which the Raptors weren't really able to take a lot of advantage of. Um, but yeah, so the Raptors ended up, we'll get into some of those specifics. The Raptors end up winning game two, 104-99. The Nets led for the bulk of the first half, and then it came down to a pretty tight closeout. Uh, Eric, let's, let's talk about these two games as a pair, because I don't think, you know, our takeaways from one or two are are dramatically different here through two games. Um, I guess I'll, I'll open it up broadly for you and just ask what has stood out to you the most about the Nets being able to... Uh, kind of be plucky and make this a five-point game and come back from 33 down to, to make game one a game? Um, I don't think that's terribly surprising. Like, they profile as a team that's going to play pretty damn hard uh, throughout. Uh, they might be short on bodies, shorter now that uh, Joe Harris, after game two, uh, is leaving the bubble for a non-medical personal reason and that will likely keep him out of the rest of the series which i mean that's just a bummer for the nets and uh and we'll talk about that more in a bit but i mean they've 
they play hard. That's what they do. That's what we saw in the bubble in a game they had no vested interest in against Portland, like playing their asses off and coming damn close to knocking them out of the playoffs. And, you know, Portland turns around and wins the playing game and wins game one against the Lakers. So, I mean, that speaks to Brooklyn's certainly capabilities. Um, I think Timothy uh, Luau Cabarrot has been pretty outstanding. Uh, his, his three point, he shot three for 10 in game two. That was down from game one. Um, but was a plus three again is, uh, it's just looking, uh, I've always heard, you know, he, he looks like an NBA small forward type, like a swingman, but he's now, his production has certainly been better than it's ever been before. He's been really good and, you know, is attacking closeouts well, is hitting shots at a, at a decent clip. So he's been like the biggest surprise. But I've got to say, too, that Jared Allen has been pretty phenomenal, even with five turnovers in game two. Uh, I thought his passing was pretty advanced. He had five assists as well. And he was a big reason why Brooklyn in the early parts of game one was succeeding. I, I think the Raptors' defensive numbers might be a bit flattering to them considering what happened in that first quarter. Brooklyn ends up shooting close to 39% from the field, 34% from three, but like they were Brooklyn, it really seemed was like they weren't just hitting a bunch of contested shots. They were hitting more contested shots than they did in game one, but they were also just, you know, making the Raptors uh, look slow, whether it was Marc Gasol or Serge Ibaka in there. And I think a lot of the credit goes to Jared Allen, uh, as somebody who's been able to pass more effectively than I've seen in the past. Yeah, so uh, I will say the most annoying thing about the Nets so far in this series, and I know that sometimes we conflate like these plucky underdog teams with playing in annoying fashion. I don't mean that for any of the Nets except for Rodion Securitz, uh, who is it's so annoying that OG Ananobi actually got annoyed, which is uh, hard to do. Uh, I will say the most annoying thing about them is the fact that they have Luau Cabro on a non-guaranteed contract for next year. That's that's a tasty piece of business right there. I've you know, my my belief in him as an NBA player has has you know been up and down over his career. Um, he hasn't always looked at the the best in the windows of opportunity he's gotten. I was a big fan of his coming into the draft um, in part because I'll always root for Megalekis uh prospects because of those cool pink and orange or pink and green jerseys rather um you know you get your your axel two pawns and stuff like that uh but yeah he's been really good and, and i think the fact that they survived and even played better defensively with him in the starting lineup instead of curix and that's you know their their top four guys are giving up a lot of size there um i think it's been really encouraging to your point about alan um you know that's something i brought up on our preview podcast with alex schiffer of the athletic new york is that that's probably the biggest thing I took away from the Nets' growth in the bubble was just how much more comfortable he looked uh, making passes. And and I think the combination of him being able to make those passes and Karis LeVert having 26 assists over these first two games, Brooklyn's offense is not good still, but it's a little more dynamic than maybe we thought coming in. LeVert has been turned into a playmaker. He shot 5 of 22 in Game 2, which isn't good, obviously. But he had an 11-2 to 2 assist to turnover ratio. Um, this is what the Raptors do to guys. And Van Vliet is an expert at getting into a guy's dribble and forcing him to get off the ball. And Ananobi got the LeVert duty down the stretch and kind of 
force him into some bad decisions. But Levert as a playmaker has been awesome. And when you have both ends of a pick and roll combination uh, that can pass and you have a Joe Harris flying around, you know, the Raptors have done a good job on these kind of three-man actions that the Nets run with um, Levert, Harris, and um, and Allen that are designed, you know, you're guarding those three guys. Most teams can't switch all three of those positions. All the Raptors can. But you see the makings of where what will probably be the Nets' second unit offense next year uh, could be pretty fun and pretty effective with, with those two, um, the, the level of playmaking there, and then if you put some shooting around them. Uh, so it's been it's been fun to see, and it's been fun to see Levert try to figure out these th- figure these things out uh, on the fly, and then you know for Jared Allen to be the best center in this series through two games is at least a minor surprise. Uh, in terms of Gasol and Ibaka, Eric. Any concern level for you? Um, obviously, we're not going to get concerned about Marcus Gasol in the big picture from having a, a couple of iffier games, uh, or really just one iffy game. And even in this one, he had uh, six screen assists and two real assists, so not not the end of the world. Uh, but do you do you see something in the matchup that like like is this going to be a tough Gasol series and a tough Abaka defensive series? Um, I'm not convinced they can't both come back and have positive impacts going forward. I mean, we already saw it from Gasol uh, and Ibaka. I'm, I'm sort of repeating myself here, but I think this is just playoff Ibaka. Like he comes in and out of series and, and looks essential in one game and you can't wait to get him off the floor in another. And uh, I, I think maybe with Surge, I haven't quite seen him enough with in the two-man game with Kyle, I'd like to see that maybe a bit more. Uh, and it's tough to to go to that when, you know, Fred Van Vliet is cooking as he has cooked in these first two games. And it was, uh, and I'm sure we'll get to this, but it was sort of stunning just to see at the end of game two, in, you know, crunch time, Lowry just completely deferring to Van Vliet. It was just like matter-of-factly passing to him at the top of the key and, and just going to space out basically. So that, that's something new, but, uh, I, I, I think that's Ibaka, you know, whether your defense revs up your offense or your offense revs up your defense, I don't think it would hurt to get Ibaka a few flow shots, uh, early in his, uh, appearance in, uh, in game three. Uh, as for Gasol, there's some nights he's going to look slow, man. And, you know, maybe that's a 130 start thing, too. I, I still, there's way too much. But he brought his Nespresso machine to the bubble. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't, and I don't like using that excuse because we don't know how they feel. We don't know how it affects them. Like, you know, the number of day games Marcus Gasol has played throughout his whole career probably isn't a big enough sample size to draw, you know, meaningful conclusions from. So I'm not going to do it off of two games against Brooklyn and a bubble scenario that we've never seen before. Um, but like in, I, I have a lot of faith in Marcus all to be a positive on the floor more often than he's not, but yeah, some game, I mean, somebody just asked if he was going to take the uh, minimum in free agency. So uh, that what? lets, that lets you know where some fans are on him. I, I think he will prove his worth uh, a few times in this playoff still. Yes. Yeah. Um, sorry. Where was that suggested? Just somebody to, in my replies. We oh. don't, we don't. Yeah. I didn't need to mention it, but, 
it was on my mind because I just yeah. replied to it. Uh, While we're talking about ago. replies, uh, apologies to Jody, who will be upset that I'm talking more on this podcast because we don't have a guest <laughs> this week. Um, the totally normal response of someone made Eric feel bad, so to make Eric feel better, you made Blake feel bad. Thanks. Appreciate uh, you. Blake, I like your voice and the content of what you say a lot more than my voice or the content of what I say. So, uh, of course, given my MO, this is not really high praise. It's clearing a low bar, but uh, I I like it better when you talk more. Yeah, that's fair. Um, By the (laughs) way, I didn't mention off the top. A reminder, though, uh, if you're not subscribed to the written side of The Athletic, uh, that's a good idea because then you don't have to hear our voices. You could just read the content. <laughs> our terrible uh, to, voices. <laughs> you can go to theathletic.com slash we the six for 40% off uh, of a subscription. I think also right now, if you just click on any of our articles, a 40% off uh, flash comes up. Uh, and at worst, you'd get a seven day free trial from clicking on one of our articles. So please do that and uh, rate, subscribe, all that good stuff. We'll be back to the show right after this break. All right, Eric, so let's go a little further down uh, the Raptors' depth chart here because one of the biggest things entering... Paul Watson Jr.? Yeah, yeah. Paul Watson Jr. needs to be freed so Justin Anderson stops talking smack late in games. Uh, Sorry, I I just wanted to give you an avenue there. Yeah. Um, Um, Look, man, the Paul Watson Jr. games were fun. There's a reason... Like, I, I know that I'm the 905 guy and it's funny to joke about. There's a reason I wasn't writing, like, Malachi Richardson or Shamori Pons or Brady Heslip features when they were with the 905. This is a selective approach. You know what I'm saying? Uh, I think you're implying that you know what you're talking about. Sometimes, not all the time. I, uh, I still I still try to get wedge Malcolm Miller into my hypothetical rotation sometimes. And that's, uh, you know, three years of me being wrong on that. Uh, yeah. Um. Anyway, the Paul Watson games were fun. But on yeah. to more relevant topics uh, yes. after my so, unfortunate tangent. We know our top seven for the Toronto Raptors rotation. Big questions coming into the series and throughout the bubble and throughout the season really about who takes the eighth man role. Um, you mentioned earlier that Joe Harris is out until game six at the very earliest. Well, Patrick McCaw and O'Shea Brissett have left the bubble for Toronto as well. Uh, McCaw had a benign mass moved from behind his left knee a procedure that cost him, I think, 18 games earlier in the year. And if that's the the length of time he's out, uh, you really have to call into question whether he could even, you know, maybe he gets back into the bubble to, to do some player development stuff and root his guys on. But uh, getting back on the floor, we saw how OG Ananobi was handled post-appendectomy last year. A uh, bit of a question there. O'Shea Brissett, meanwhile, was uh, is back in Toronto after getting loose bodies removed from his right knee. And now he's a digital fan for the Raptors home games, which was really funny. Yeah, you got to like that. That's a good use of uh, roster spots, Yeah, I guess. Uh, The Raptors, for anyone wondering, cannot replace those two on the roster. So they're rolling with 15 right now, um, which has been fine. They're not going to use more guys than that. Uh, The guys they have used in the eighth and ninth spot in game one, Rondé Hollis-Jefferson got the first crack at that. Matt Thomas had kind of a... Just like a bigger Jody Meeks style cameo, and then in, and then Terrence Davis took uh, those minutes from there. Um, Terrence Davis had Matt Thomas actually had a nice showing too. He had three assists in Game One, um, although some of that was floated by by garbage time. Terrence Davis played really well 
uh, in game one, I thought uh, kind of offered the the level of aggression on offense the Raptors need. He had a, a big three late in the clock in the third quarter and then had a nice transition and one in the fourth. He did not see the floor in game two for the first time all season. Ronnie Ellis Jefferson got the first crack at the eighth man spot, played six minutes in the first half. Matt Thomas got those minutes in the second half, played five minutes. Nurse never went to uh, four bench players on the floor at once, so he kept the rotation basically at eight with two guys sharing the eight-man role. Uh, are you surprised Terrence Davis was shelved in game two? And are you seeing more than I am with Rondé's minutes? Because even though they've been uh, a positive both games, I don't think that has a ton to do with Hollis Jefferson necessarily. Um, I actually thought Rondé was pretty good in game two. I don't uh, think he was in, bad. In I just... minutes. Yeah, like I don't think he's essential or anything, but like he's like I thought I felt his defensive presence, I thought helped right some of what was going wrong uh, early in the game for the Raptors. So I will, I'll stick up for him there. Uh, and, you know, he obviously helps a team, like when a team is getting sort of exposed, like the Raptors were early on and, uh, you know, with Allen in the middle of the floor, catching passes and make, making plays, people who can, you know, help and recover like Rondé Hollis Jefferson can or switch like he can obviously help. So, I mean, the guy played six minutes in game <laughs> two, so I, I don't want to say it was more than it was. It, it was, I just thought it was a, a fine cameo. Uh, all of this to say on balance, I think Terrence Davis is going to give them, has the possibility certainly of giving them the most. Um, what I will say is, that in a big norm game, he can feel like a bit of a duplication. Um, and I, I sort of get why in, in given the context of the game, he didn't play. I, I mean, I don't think we didn't ask Nick Nurse about it because I, I think the answer is pretty obvious. He went with his gut and they got a win and that's, fine and I don't find anything he did particularly objectionable um, but I think on balance I'd like to see Terrence Davis playing more often than not and uh, I think he sort of deserves at least a chance in most games to get on the floor but uh, yeah, it didn't shock me to see him benched no. Speaking of questioning coach decisions uh, your Toronto Blue Jays Eric, are now 10 and 11 are you coming around on Charlie? Am I coming? You were, you've been the more vocal Charlie Basher than I have. Because but, he's uh, bad. Um, I I've, well, I didn't see much of today's game, obviously. It was I saw none of the it same other than that they won. Yeah. Uh, the, the J, especially last night's game, or uh, what's today? Tuesday night's game. Uh, that was a very Jays-esque lost, loss by the Orioles. Uh, yeah. They they really jazed it up there, uh, but you know, anytime you can sweep uh, the, the trash birds, it, it's a good time. But no, I, I, I I'm I'm fully on bring back Gibbons. I am yeah. in the I, I love John Gibbons, and uh, Montoya has not impressed me, despite my awareness that managers really don't matter a whole lot. This is where Zim hits the rewind sound effect, and I use that segue to talk about a basketball question instead of a baseball question. So <laughs> let's try this again. Eric, talking about uh, questioning coaching decisions, Nick Nurse went with his gut again with about five minutes left 
in game two, he took Serge Ibaka off the floor. Marcus All did not come back in. The Raptors opted to close a little smaller. Uh, Marcus All, as we discussed, had had a poor game, was minus 13. Ibaka was a plus 18, uh, but was not having a good defensive game. And with the unit they wanted to close with, he didn't really, there wasn't as much of a need for him offensively. Uh, he also had five fouls, so maybe they just went to that for a couple minutes and we're going to go back to him and then didn't need to. They closed instead with Lowry, Van Vliet, Powell, Ananobi, and Siakam. That lineup had played together for two minutes this year. Uh, it's not entirely surprising that the Raptors are finding new lineups to roll out now because of how many injuries they had this year. Uh, but it is a little interesting that uh, the, the smaller unit that they went to was somewhat of a novel one for them. Usually when they've gone small, uh, Hollis Jefferson is a third man in those spots. Um, Terrence Davis has gotten a little bit of opportunity in that Norman Powell spot. Uh, really, if you're going smaller, often what it's about is, is offense. You're getting a little more playmaking on the floor, a little more shooting. Uh, that's certainly the case. They could go five out, and that was, you know, down the stretch there. Jared Allen was having to either guard pick and rolls where a switch wasn't the, the best possible outcome for Brooklyn or stick to a guy in the corner. But in this case, I thought it was more defense-oriented. The Levert-Allen pick-and-roll, as we talked about, had been pretty deadly, uh, especially in that kind of in-between range where Levert can get his floater off, and if the big comes up to contest, the dump-off's there for Jared Allen. Uh, Levert had a really, really nice kind of wraparound dump-off at one point in the first half uh, for Allen in exactly that kind of situation. Siakam comes in and, you know, if the Nets had decided, oh, we're going to run post-ups for Jared Allen, which they don't do, I think the Nets post up less than any team in the entire NBA, um, you know, then you could put OG Ananobi on him. Ananobi's guarded a Jokic type or a Kevin Love in the past and can guard in the post up a size. Uh, but when Jared Allen was operating in pick and roll, uh, Siakam was free to kind of defend that space. He had a great kind of block slash steal of a Levert lob attempt for Jared Allen. Uh, if it had come up, they could have switched uh, Levert Allen pick and rolls with Ananobi and Siakam. Uh, and then, you know, there's just a little more juice. Nick Nurse chalked it up to he played the five guys who were playing the best in this game. But I do think there's a little something to lineups like this against certain opponent offense types. Uh, what do you think of that decision from Nurse and how those five look together? First of all, I thought it was the right decision. Um... Like, well, you can say I, that now. It worked. Yeah. Um, but I guess, sorry, I, I, I mean, say it worked. They were, they were a plus zero in five minutes, but because those are closeout minutes, that's I mean, just, just Gasol and Ibaka had been bad defensively, both of them. And It's so it, weird to say that about Mark Gasol. But he had. He, I know. He looked, he looked really slow. I don't know what other way to say it. He was, like, slow to it's react. It's just weird, was, that's all. Yeah, no. Um, and... Like, I, I think he'll figure it out and he'll figure out ways to, again, to impact the series defensively because he's one of the smartest and best defenders alive, I think we can still say. Um, but he, they were getting absolutely exploited, you know, minus 13 in 17 minutes. Uh, and, I, I, you know, not a, a huge coincidence. Uh, and Ibaka, until he... I mean, to say nothing of his defense, which I thought was problematic, he was not exactly taking the best shots in the offense either, I don't think. And he's yet to find his rhythm there. So I thought, like, the ability to switch a bit more, the ability to scramble a bit more um, since, you know, the Nets, which I wrote about, like, aren't 
really going to look to pound you on the offensive glass. Uh, they had seven. It seemed like more. It always seems like more. I don't know why this is. They had seven offensive rebounds only against the Raptors in game two after, I believe, nine in game one. Those aren't big numbers. Uh, Jared Allen, I believe, has eight of the Nets' 17 offensive rebounds in this series. Um, so you're not going to get, you know, chances are you're not going to get hugely punished for downsizing in that way. So I, I, I think, you know, you sort of said it was like a simplification. I mean, I shouldn't say that. I, I don't think playing the five guys who are playing the best on any given day is necessarily a bad reason to do something. I, I think if the lineup makes sense logically, even if you don't have a ton of lineup data, and especially for a team like the Raptors this year, um, who don't have lineup data and a lot of plausible lineups just because, you know, one guy or another was out at, at you know, most of the time, I think that's not a half bad reason to do something. And I, I like, yes, you want to make sure that certain parts of it work together and that's why you want to see Serge and Marcus all play together at times, because even if they end up in a new five-man lineup, you want them to know how to work together uh, as a two-man group. So I guess what my, my bigger point here is that even if we see new five-man groups, I think the individuals all know how to work together well enough that it shouldn't cause these, this massive confusion or anything. You, you mentioned uh, the offensive rebounding being one of the things that you give up when you go small and how the Nats have only taken moderate advantage of that so far. I think, you know, well, not, I think you did write about this uh, this week and it's something that's come up in both of my recalibrations so far is that the Raptors are still getting a ton of transition opportunities against the Nets. Um, they, I think they took 21% of their possessions in transition in game one, and that was 19 and change in game two. And they averaged 1.2 per possession in the first game and 1.3 in the second game. That's a lot. And the, the Raptors are, you know, you can quibble with one, two, three. They are one of the very best transition offenses in basketball for a second year in a row. Brooklyn has given lip service to getting back in transition and limiting those opportunities. And they've done a really, really great job on the Raptors in their half court defense. They're just, they're not doing, they're not doing a good enough job getting back in transition, stopping these opportunities. And, you know, I've thought that it's looked like they're fairly conservative at times on the offensive glass, but they might need to be even more so to stop these Toronto uh, runouts. And I think that's one thing that could, you know, you think, oh, they went small, we'll hit them on the glass. But I think your concern has to be they also have five guys on the floor who can sprint the floor. You know, Lowry and Van Vliet who push really well, Siakam and uh, Powell who are just excellent transition players all around, and, and Ananobi who's who's no slouch either. You have five guys who can push the ball up the floor, five guys who can run, five guys who can, you know, uh, sprint to a corner or something like that. So uh, I do wonder if that would tempt Brooklyn to get even more conservative on the offensive glass or if they go the other way and just lean into that advantage and you do what you can with it. Um, you know, most of Vaughn's decisions since taking over have skewed toward the conservative because they don't have a ton of talent that they're working with there and they, they haven't had a ton of time to rework things. Um, you wrote the you know, the bigger piece on the Raptors transition offense and how it breaks what opponents want to do. 
Uh, do you have a sense of where Brooklyn might go in terms of offensive rebounding? And I guess my the more interesting question is maybe those minutes that Allen sits, is it worth it even with, with how little offensive rebounding talent that they have? Um, first of all, I, I wrote this in my story on Norm Powell postgame today, but uh, the Nets were minus 14 in the seven-plus minutes that Jared Allen sat in game uh, two, which in a five-point game is is pretty important. It's not quite at the level of the Sixers losing uh, game seven uh, because they went minus 10 in, or minus 12, I forget. And uh, now I'm worried I screwed that up in my story. Uh, that'll be fun. Uh, in the fewer than three minutes that Joel Embiid sat in game seven. Uh, it's not quite at that level, but yeah, they're they're really thin up front. It, it, it goes without saying. Um, I don't think Brooklyn is going to change much in terms of that approach. I, I think you're right in saying, if anything, they get a bit more conservative, uh, especially when Allen's not on the floor. I just think it comes down to you don't let your opponent do the thing they do best. Like, yeah. <laughs> especially when you're an underdog, like... You can't lose. I, I mean, if you lose, you lose. It doesn't matter, I suppose. And but you don't want to lose on their terms. Yeah, there's some game theory involved, blah, blah, blah. But, like, it's like, you know, allowing, giving Giannis a ton of space in transition and not trying to be a, a bit physical with them, you know? Like, it's it doesn't make any sense to let the Raptor like... I do think, like, when you look at the frequency and you look at the efficiency, there are very few teams that can even compete with the Raptors in terms of transition offense. We so, What I saw from writing that piece is, even in the playoffs last year, they certainly weren't as effective, but they still tried to run a hell of a lot. Uh, the impact went down because teams prioritized it and they were playing on, on a whole very good defensive teams, but... The Raptors still got, you know, 17, 18% of their shots up in transition. Just so happened that when they were in the half court, they had very, very, very long possessions uh, <laughs> to sort of make up for that. Um, I, I don't, yeah, I don't think it's something Brooklyn can really look to, should look to change. They can do whatever they want, but, <laughs> you know, sending more of their smallish wings to try and beat out Kyle Lowry and Fred Van Vliet for rebounds, who, despite their size, are pretty damn smart positional rebounders. I, I think that's a, a way to lose by closer to 24 points than five points. That is fair. Uh, speaking of physicality that you mentioned, Eric, did you see the video of Kyle Lowry's ass slap on Geo after the game as he walked into the tunnel? I did not. Oh, I was going to ask for your thoughts on his form, but if you didn't see that, then uh, you know, I'm I sorry. Guess this is that's okay. This is what I get for bringing up a, a video stimuli on a audio form. Um, I can't show you the clip. Yeah, no, I, I I was in you know trying to write so we can uh, record this damn thing. Yeah, and, and that's what I did. Okay, uh, the other, I think the big thing that we, we need to discuss to frame up games three and four is unfortunately the uh, situation with Joe Harris. Yeah. As mentioned earlier, he's leaving the bubble, uh, won't be back until game six at the very earliest based on um, protocols. It's it's tough. Joe Harris is very good. Uh, he had 14 points, 15 rebounds in game two. Uh, he is 
a terrific high-volume three-point shooter. He's very, very good off the ball. He's got a little bit of juice to his game where, you know, he's not just a spot-up guy or a catch-and-shoot guy. He's not particularly good defensively, and Kyle Lowry was kind of hunting that mismatch in game two. And, sorry, and I just, like, I apologize if it sounds insensitive to, like, be picking apart Harris's game um, when we don't know the situation that he's leaving. I'm, I'm just trying to set up how it changes the series. Obviously, we hope everything's... Um, fine with Harris and his family. Um, Lowry did attack that a little bit. It's, um, it, you know, kind of callous as it seems, not knowing the situation. We do have to talk about what this looks like without him now. You know, the Nets are down. They've struggled to shoot the three in the series so far anyway, and now they're down their best three-point shooter. They've struggled with spacing because the Raptors don't really care about Garrett Temple or even a, a hotter Timothy Luau Cabarro or Curix or, or anyone, really, other than Joe Harris off the ball. Um, so that's going to get, you know, tighter now. If the Nets have to, not if, they do have to go deeper in the rotation, you know, they're in some pretty tough spots picking not only who starts in Harris's spot, but like, do you go super small with an extra guard to goose your offense? Or do you, you know, do you play a, a wing in his place? Who's just not as not nearly as good. I, I don't know what the answers are here. Um, obviously this makes things a little more straightforward for how Toronto defends. And I think Levert and Allen are going to see even more attention. Uh, Eric, in your mind, what, what, what's the, the impact here? What do you expect Brooklyn to do to try to counter it? <sighs> it's just bad for them. <laughs> like they have no, mar- they had no margin of error. They had a 99 offensive rating in game two after I think having it up around 107 in, in game one. Uh, that was with Harris. Not that Harris had a great shooting game. Uh, he went, f- oh no, never mind. Went four for seven from three. He did have a good shooting game. Um, And he, beyond that, he has the spacing effect that all great shooters who, especially ones that can move without the ball, uh, as well as Harris can, uh, have on a defense. And again, they scored 99 points per 100 possessions and 99 points in the game. So I'm guessing there were about 100 possessions in the game, Blake. Um, So what do I, I mean... (laughs) I think we'll see a bit of everything. I think maybe we see uh, more of Justin Anderson, certainly uh, Jeremiah Martin, uh, the, the guard. We might see more of uh, Zanin Musin, Musa, Zanin. Is that how we say his name? I'm not 100% sure. Uh, if, if Blake is not 100% sure on the pronunciation of a, a peripheral NBA player, uh, you know where we've gotten to in this series, which isn't to discredit the Brooklyn Nets. But I just don't want to say it without double-checking it first. That's yeah, no, no, I, no. But a... that, that's, uh, I'm just saying that's where we are in this series, and that's where the Brooklyn Nets are in this yeah. bubble. Like, I, I you... will say, speaking of pronunciations, uh, I was on Sam Bassini's Game Theory podcast uh, during the bubble games, and his pronunciation of Goja Batadze for the Pacers was unbelievable. Yeah, I mean, so I, we'll get, we'll, I feel we'll like you just him. did it pretty well, so uh, yeah. so if I, I, I'd want to hear that. Yeah, uh, so we're, we're going to call him up after this, get him pronounce, to pronounce uh, Jean and Musa, and uh, we'll just drop it in there every time we say it. We'll just have a drop of, of Sam pronouncing <laughs> Jean and Musa. Yeah. <laughs> It'll be like those Simpson episodes, uh, or the one where they have the Super Bowl, they go to the Super Bowl, and then they just dub in the teams that end up playing in the Super Bowl because obviously right. animation is filmed 
way yes. in advance. Uh, it'll be like that, but with Sam's voice. Yes. Anyway, uh, Jeremiah Martin, Chris Chioza, Justin Anderson, who knows, man. The Nets are in trouble is uh, my short answer to that. Yeah, uh, and it's tough because, like, if you put Chioza on the floor, like, yeah, that that's going to help your offense. Like, he makes nice passes. He can shoot a little bit. Like, he's a good, fun player. But then you're talking about, like, like Garrett Temple's your three and Luau Cabro's your four. And then if you put Justin Anderson in that spot, like it's definitely a guy who you can put on um, Pascal Siakam and see how that goes. And Luau's maybe a more natural uh, three than he is, a, certainly a more natural three than he is a four. Um, but then, you know, Anderson has not at any point in his career really shot the three well. Like, is that just going to be too little spacing and the Raptors could just help so aggressively off of him in the corners? Yeah. And, like, the tough part is, like, they don't have that guy who's, like, the middle ground and offers a little bit of both. Like, like I guess they could put Curix back in the starting lineup. I was going to guess. I was so ac- bad. Yeah, I was actually going to guess Tyler Johnson goes to the starting lineup. Um, but, I mean, like, they've, they've yeah. bled points every time he hits the floor. I know he individually hasn't been bad, and it's more about him, Curix, and Chioza sharing those minutes together. But, like... I guess that's it. You're, you're already down 18 players, and now you just lost your, your second or third best one. Yes. This is my point. There are no good options. Uh, I mean, based on the track records, I, I guess Curix is the most sensible call, but, I mean, I think he's also been the single worst player in the series. So, uh, again, two games, and if, you know, he looks a lot... He's a lot more playable in situations where he's not the nominal center. I'll say that, but uh, <laughs> uh, he's listed here on ESPN. I'm just looking at the ESPN box score as a he's small six, forward. Nine. Yeah, so, he's 6'9". Uh, um, I mean, he's fine at power forward. Like. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I mean, not that ESPN's positions are the holy grail, but he's overmatched at that as a rim protector, certainly. Um, and it just isn't quite physical in, in a way that like an OG Ananobi would be to be able to do other things in that spot. Um, but again, there's only so many ways we can say that's where we are with the series. And uh, I mean, credit to Brooklyn for making game two as complicated as it was. I, I think, you know, they're a great story. Uh, this series isn't over. Like I, I, they've been competitive enough that I'm not ready to say it's definitely going to be a sweep or anything like that, but we're just seeing the talent disparity and the continuity disparity growing. And that's, it's a lot to overcome. As we look forward to game three, one thing I'm finding weird now that we're done a couple of the game twos is that like normally at this point, your expectation for each game shifts a little bit because you're moving to a different location. So like, as we record this, the Celtics are up 10 on the 76ers. And a part of me is thinking, oh, well, the next two games are going to Philly. So, you know, those would generally tilt their way. And it's like, no, nothing's going to change except for who does the introductions and whose fans are on the digital board. Exactly. Uh, like, for some reason, if the Raptors lost game two, uh, it would have been like I would have considered it a bigger failure, individual failure than them losing game three, uh, even though. Each game, you're essentially like is the same as you put up. I mean, I know Nick Nurse says that's not necessarily true, um, and the home team had like before the bubble had one 
what, 55% of the games, which yeah. is roughly in line, I think, with what it was during the regular season. Uh, I'm just going to say I'm skeptical about, quote-unquote, home court making any difference, but it's tough to break those habits when you've watched playoff basketball uh, closely or very closely for the last 25 years. Yeah, that's uh, that's totally fair. So Game 3 goes Friday at 1.30, Game four goes Sunday at 6.30. Ugh, the nerve. Yeah. Garbage. uh, That could be it for the series. We're not sure. Uh, If it extends, we don't know a game time for Tuesday yet, but we do know it'll be Tuesday. Uh, I would imagine if it extends, we'll talk to you after that because we'll want to talk to you. We'll miss you guys. Uh, And there will be a Nets win to, to talk about somewhere in there. If the Raptors complete the sweep... For the first time in franchise history, um, we will, I guess, turn our focus to probably the Celtics, uh, the way things are looking uh, through a game and a half of that series, but not necessarily the Celtics. We'll see We'll see how that stuff goes. We'll see if Joel Embiid ends up chokeslamming Alec Burks or another one of his teammates. Um, that game, ironically, bumping AEW Dynamite on TNT tonight. So there, there you go. Poor, poor Chuck Taylor, 76ers fan. Uh, double double hit from that one. Uh, Eric, any closing thoughts before we let the people go? Uh, I've rambled enough. Yeah, uh, I, w- I mean, I wrote about Norm Powell's finishing at the rim. It was exceptional uh, in game two. It was really good all year. Go read that. But the one thing I, we didn't touch on is I thought like that was Pascal Siakam's best defensive game. He's been so a, good a long, on that end in, in the a bubble. long, long time. And... I looked at the plus minuses and he was minus nine. And I don't think that's indicative at all of what he did. Uh, I thought he was great when he was on um, Karis Levert. And I thought he was really good in other situations too. Uh, And while we, uh, and you know, he obviously took an offensive step forward in game two. Uh, As a team, the Raptors were really smart about when to attack the rim and when not to, which is another thing I got into in my piece. Uh, and he showed that occasionally. He still had some maybe forcing the issue type plays. But defensively, uh, there's not much to say other than he was really good in game two, has been good overall, as you point out, and it deserves noting. Yeah, it sure does. Um, you know, the conversation around Siakam, you know, he had 19 points on 19 used possessions in this one. I, I think he was 18 on 19 in the first game or something like that. Um, he was 18 on 19 in the first game. Look at that. Uh you know, it's not as efficient as you want your lead score to be, but the Raptors don't necessarily need that right now. And I think he's done a good job contributing in other ways. Double-digit rebounds in Game 1, pretty good defense uh, in Game 1, really good defense in Game 2. Uh, three assists in Game 2 as well, and only one turnover. Those turnovers that were an issue earlier in the uh, postseason, or sorry, the postseason, earlier in the reseeding games, uh, have not materialized the, these two games, which is encouraging to see. And I also think the fact that he's 3 of 12 at the rim on drives or transition attacks is going to normalize a little bit. Um, There's nothing, you know, super mechanical, but like, I do think he's taking off maybe a half step too far away to try to invite the contact uh, and get to the line. But he's also taken 18 free throws over two games, which is great. And I think even if he's, you know, not, even if his finishing approach is a little bit off, he's going to shoot better than three of 12 on those over a longer stretch of time. So uh, worth monitoring still but not getting too too alarmed about um all right 
uh, guys, this has been it for post game two podcast. Thank you for listening. We'll talk to you after game four, I think probably win or lose. Eric, thanks so much, man. Thanks, Blake. See ya.